Welcome to the Wisdom of the Womb podcast, your home for mind, body, and soul wellness for women. My name is Stephanie Adler. I'm a certified nutrition consultant, birth doula, and women's hormone and fertility expert. I've supported hundreds of women in having healthy cycles, healthy babies, and building a balanced foundation in their bodies and minds to set them up for a limitless life. Now it's your turn. I believe a woman reaches her full potential when she trusts the innate wisdom of her body and that those women change the world. So if you're wanting to achieve hormone harmony, have boundless energy, optimize your fertility, live a holistically healthy life, and learn how to love and trust your body to become the well woman you know you are meant to be, you're in the right place. Join me for weekly wisdom on topics such as holistic hormone and gut health, fertility, mindfulness, birth, pregnancy, and beyond, and leave with actionable steps towards well womanhood. Thanks for pressing play today. I'm so excited for the magic we're going to create together. Let's dive in. Hello, podcast family. Thanks for tuning in today. What I'm going to be speaking about today might be controversial. There may be elements of today's episode that you fully align with, some that make you uncomfortable, perhaps because you hadn't thought of it in that way before, or because it's really not true for you. And that is okay. We've come to live in a strange society where topics are so polarizing. It must be black and white, when in reality, the beauty is so often in the gray. So I encourage you to take what serves you from today's episode, perhaps explore what feels triggering and leave whatever really doesn't align. This podcast has been in the making for months, my own thoughts and opinions on the matter, having still been in development over the past couple of years Many of the ideas that have come forth in what I'll be sharing today are based on personal experiences, witnessing clients in different stages of their lives, conversations with friends, observations of the greater society that we live in, in the Western world, the modernized West, the modernized Western world, reading other thought leaders' perspectives on the way said modern Western society is moving and some of the strangeness that we found ourselves in, in this culture. I acknowledge and recognize that a lot of the perspective I'll be speaking from today is one of privilege as a woman born to a specific time and place in the world as a certain color. And one that not all of my fellow female sisters around the world have this, the fortune to speak from. And for this, I am so grateful and it doesn't change how I feel. I need to speak about what I see happening in my society, my culture, my country, and my community. With that said, I'm really just inviting you to get curious and share with me how this makes you feel, what resonates in a respectful way, though, please. I do look forward to continuing the conversation in this community. And so always, please feel free to send me a message on Instagram as I get closer and closer to my due date. My capacity for conversation may 
decrease in line with the decreasing of my sleep probably, but I'm really looking forward to hearing what comes up for you about this topic and just ask that you, you know, share respectfully with me if something doesn't align and if it does align, that's beautiful too. So yeah, let's get started where let's talk about feminism growing up. I remember being really inspired by the feminist movement when I was learning about it, learning about suffrage, you know, the suffrage movement for women, the bra burning women of the sixties and seventies, it felt exhilarating, right? I felt inspired knowing I can do slash be anything when I grow up, even as a woman. But what I don't think I realized until much more recently is that the idea of I can be anything was actually on the decline because of feminism by the time I was growing up in the nineties and early two thousands. And that, that quote unquote, anything was really narrowing into what those specific feminists of the sixties to nineties believed was the everything to women's liberation. And that the osmosis effect was already in motion for young girls and young women like me, and that becoming anything and the idea of what that fulfillment and success looked like meant measuring my success and fulfillment in the same way that a man of that time would measure his. And the feminist ideology of the 70s and 80s convinced women that the image of success was to live equally like a man, to feel sexually liberated like a man, which at the time, you know, meant being more sexually promiscuous because that was what men were more likely to be than women to work like a man. So to become a CEO, to wear a suit to work, to make money, to be independent. And at that place of work, leave the idea of the family more behind, out of sight, out of mind, to dress more masculine, enter the pantsuit, to be able to keep up with the men in the conversation and negotiations. The goal was to climb the corp ladder, to be taken seriously and to, to man up, right? But women are not men. And the repercussions of this movement, in my opinion, on females has been severe. Now, in this podcast, I'm going to present the cascade of impact that occurs or occurred from this liberation movement. Do I think that these cascade of impacts that have not necessarily all been positive of the feminist movement were intentionally malicious? Absolutely not. Do I think that beauty and good came from this movement? For sure. Do I also think that we've crossed the bell curve and the impact has left lasting scars and traumas on the women of the West today? And that we as a society are going to soon start to see the unraveling of this movement or already started to actually already have started to see the unraveling of this movement and in ways that are more harmful that they than they potentially had to be helpful, possibly. Quite possibly. So over the next however long it takes, <laughs> I'll be presenting the following. Number one, 
that the rise of feminism in the way presented by the mainstream feminist movement from the late 60s to the late 90s, 1960s to 1990s, was codependent on the mass use of hormonal birth control, which has led to generations of women feeling disconnected from themselves, anxious, depressed, disconnected from their true sexual natures, has suppressed divine feminism energy culture-wide over the past 60 years, and created a numbing rather than liberated, fulfilling impact and effect for millions of women. Number two, that feminism opened the door for women, but has since narrowed the hallway to the point where there are fewer options for most women being able to choose the life that would ultimately be most fulfilling for them. This is due to current societal pressures, expected dual income households, and more as an as a product of the feminist movement. Number three, that feminism and its byproducts inadvertently led to rising infertility rates for several reasons, as well as chronic rates, increasing rates of chronic illness and autoimmunity, of which 80% of people who suffer from are women, obesity, and the overall breakdown of the health system um, and just the health of many people alongside other factors as well, creating an environment where it's even more challenging to feel healthy, happy, and fulfilled as a woman in today's world. And number four, that feminism has created a forced casual sex culture that actually works against the female biological system, leaving so many women lonely, anxious, and sad, which also goes back to points one and three around hormonal birth control. and infertility rates, et cetera. So let's get going. Let us begin. Let's start with point number one, hormonal birth control and feminism's codependency on it. It is a well-known fact that the rise of feminism was heavily connected to the availability of the hormonal birth control pill. The contraceptive pill for the first time gave women significant say and power in how, when, and with whom they had children opening the door for women to be more active in the workplace, more sexually active in general without the risk of pregnancy, and overall created more choice. As someone who is a non-fan of hormonal birth control contraceptive pills for many reasons, see episode one of this podcast, I do want to applaud the hormonal birth control for this advancement for women. I really do. But the advancement went too far, in my opinion, and so did this codependency. As it likely comes to no surprise to women listening to this episode, there were not long-term studies done on this medication. To this day, we have no studies that look at the impact of taking this medication for decades. As is currently common, I regularly see women in my practice who've been taking the birth control pill for 15, 20 years. And shutting down this reproductive system for that length of time can have serious impact. This has been the largest medical experiment that has ever been done on an unknowing population. Well, I know before the you know what, that became the widespread norm around the world in 2021 and beyond. But going back to this real, real medical experiment, like we have no idea what it means to shut down women's reproductive systems for 20 plus years when they're supposed to be functioning on their own. This doesn't sound empowering to me. 
And, you know, it's really an entire episode on its own. So if this is new news to you in terms of the side effects and the impacts of hormonal birth control, I really do ask you to go listen to episode one of this podcast next to some shortly, the side effects can range from severe anxiety and depression, loss of libido. Some, some studies show that you choose a less compatible partner when on hormonal birth control, both in terms of like what would make you happiest, but also in terms of genetic diversity, which potentially contributes to point three of this podcast in which we'll be talking about increasing infertility rates, disease, chronic diseases, et cetera. Hormonal birth control can also increase the risk of diabetes, developing in menopause for women who took birth control for even a few months during their non-menopausal years, increased risk of cancer for you, the taker, and for your offspring. I mean, so many things, blood clots, et cetera. And here's the thing. I was watching a new season of Working Moms on Netflix uh, recently. I love that show. And in one of the episodes, one of the main characters is the you know, she, she's representing a new pharmaceutical company that is promoting birth control. And her husband starts taking this medication and he's having symptoms very similar to those that women have insecurity, very emotional loss of libido, et cetera. And the main, and is kind of complaining about it a little bit. And the main character, a woman says, and I quote, the thing about birth control is that you deal with the symptoms and suck it up. Yikes. How is this where we've led women that in 2023 on a major TV show, looking at the big issues of our time, we're making a social commentary on the fact that women are sucking it up when it comes to feeling terrible on this medication that they feel they need to be able to take in order to keep up with the demand that feminism has placed on them. We're going to talk about this more soon, but how is that any different than having to suck it up than and make dinner every night. The, the very thing the feminists of the 60s eras were trying to move us away from. But now women are still making dinner most nights or at least carrying the mental load of how their families will eat while also dealing with the symptoms of their birth control for decades at a time. So we have generations at this point of women going on hormonal birth control, starting younger and younger before they even know themselves to prevent pregnancy. And I ask at what cost, especially when we know there are other ways. If the goal of the feminism movement was to create liberated women, but millions of women are suppressing their natural hormones, putting their bodies and mental health at risk in order to do so, are we really creating the desired outcome? Plus, Women are staying on it longer and longer because of the other impacts of feminism, as I'll allude more to in the next point, around needing or believing that they need to stay in the workplace longer without kids. Additionally, a movement that we see taking place around feminism and hormonal birth control is that women were intentionally desiring to shut down their cycles in order to compete in a man's world. Feminism said it was necessary to do, to be equal, right? In order to break the, the glass ceiling. It was, it was necessary for a woman to be equal to a man to break that glass ceiling. And how inconvenient to have your period when men don't have to. So if our lives need to look more masculine to keep up with the men, instead of living according to our own rhythm, which was the natural course for the thousands of years before 70 years ago, 
then why not just shut down this whole system and numb the shifts that would naturally come with it? This numbing, this shutting down of the natural hormone rhythms that a woman goes through that makes her different than a man could only be done through the use of synthetic hormones using hormonal birth control. But there wasn't enough data or education to inform the women on the repercussions of doing this, some of the which I mentioned above, but so many others I didn't. And this is not the type of liberation I envision when I think of feminism. Women blindly taking medication with negative side effects to live more like men in a man's world and to pretend this makes it equitable. I think this has become even more apparent as there's been more of a recent rise of women becoming more educated about hormonal birth control, getting off of hormonal birth control and realizing the awakening that is happening within their female bodies when they are given the chance to cycle naturally. We're seeing a rise of this divine feminine energy in mass because women are waking up to this BS system they've been shuttled into. I mean, how many people were just told to get on hormonal birth control as a teenager and never thought about it again. They were just shuttled into it. And we're seeing how much this feminine energy has been repressed over the past several decades. And in my opinion, it is a fallacy that the divine feminine energy that has been repressed societal wide over the past you know, several decades was externally and exclusively pushed down by the patriarchy over the past 60 years. Like that is the narrative we've been told, but I, but I don't think it is true. I rather think that the movement that was supposedly supposed to liberate divine feminine energy, feminism, as a result of telling women that in order to succeed, they needed to disconnect from their cycles and their natural rhythms to play equal in a man's world actually played a huge part in suppressing this divine feminine energy. We really thought that we were trading up, but really women were selling out to the system. And now that we're seeing we can build our own system instead of buying into the man's system, there's a new wave, a new wave of what I would define as like divine feminine energy feminism, but it's not one that the traditional feminist models ever presented to us. I'll leave that there for now, though we'll be coming back to hormonal birth control, you know, in future points, because it's so interwoven into all the topics that we're going to be discussing today, but let's move on to the workplace for now. Feminism created this opening of the door to women in the workplace. In some ways, this has been amazing, truly what women have created in terms of business has radically changed the world. I'll even put myself in this category. Me working has helped over 40 plus women get pregnant and grow their families. Hundreds more women learn to trust their bodies and live their most authentic lives. The domino impact of that work is massive and I know it. And I'm so grateful to the women who opened these doors for me to do the work that I do, be able to share publicly about period sex and all the things that I talk about. But What if feminism didn't just open the door for women in the workplace, but in many ways locked the door behind them after they walked through? 
what if feminism in its pursuit of equality between the sexes ignored that women maybe weren't designed to work the way that men do in each season of their lives? And, you know, like in each season of their lives for women, there were different ways in which they were supposed to work. And what the cost of this pursuit of doing it the man's way might be. I want to start with a couple of client stories. I was talking with a friend who has since become a client inside the Well Woman Collective, but at the time she was expressing to me her frustrations with trying to feed her family in a nourishing way, show up for her kids in the way that she desires, work a full-time high pressure job and have a life socialize. She feels like she's always compromising somewhere and can't keep up or can't catch up. She said, and I quote, I think the dual income household is a lie. That's my conclusion, end quote. Another one of my clients was sharing with me that she had recently gone back to work part-time after having her third baby. She was feeling more and more called to stay at home with her kids, but felt embarrassed to say at PTA meetings that she wasn't working or felt like it was supposed to not be enough for her to stay at home with her kids. And even though her paycheck was barely covering their childcare, she would have rather, and she would have rather been at home with her kids. She felt like there was societal pressure to do more than be a mom. So she would leave her babies with someone else go to a hospital and take care of other people's kids for several hours a day while hooked up to a breast pump in her bra, counting the hours until she could go home and spend a few rushed hours with her kids before they went to sleep while she also tried to get dinner on the table. Do these women sound liberated and fulfilled to you? Because they seem stuck to me. And here's my thing about open doors. There should be a choice to walk through them And then back out if that's what you desire. They should revolve. But somewhere along the way, through mainstream adoption of this narrative, it's not only a privilege, the narrative being women are are expected in the workplace. It's now not only a privilege for a woman to not have to work because of the expected dual income household that is commonly needed for a family to be able to live comfortably in the West nowadays, which I think is a product of everyone just expecting women to work. But also a strange societal belief that if a woman is just a stay-at-home mom, that she is somehow less fulfilled than her working mother counterparts. So, Even if a woman does desire to stay home with her kids, she's constantly defending herself for all of the things she does to feel fulfilled. I'm on this committee and that committee, and I volunteer here, et cetera. But the even stranger thing is now that society is starting to recognize how much work actually goes into child rearing. We see this with posts online about how much time a woman will spend breastfeeding babies in the first year or how much sleep a new mother will lose. But she's still expected to go in and be in the workforce like a man and still shoulder a large percentage of the child rearing. And of course, this will be different in every family. And I do see a lot of men taking over household tasks. But overall, I'd say in witnessing the women I work with, 
so much of the family work is still on the women. Another one of my clients loves her job. She loves working in a corporate setting. And after four months of maternity leave, she was chomping at the bit to go back. She finally felt like herself again at work. She's a great example of feminism success. But what's still super interesting to me, as I was sitting catching up with her the other day, is she was expressing how burnt out she was. She does the cooking, the cleaning, and she's the primary breadwinner. That's just how it is in her home. She finally started outsourcing more, is doing a local meal pickup that she still spent her Saturday going to go pick up and do. She hired the cleaning lady to come more often, but she's still working 50 plus hour weeks, usually much more than that travels for work and is responsible for all of the housework unless she hires someone to do it. Another example from Working Moms, the Netflix series in the most recent season, is the owner of the publishing company who wants to do it all. So she brings her young baby to work with her. And in a meeting, she's publicly shamed by another woman and told to leave the baby at home. Are these women better off than the women of the 60s? Maybe some and maybe not. It's all relative. But the problem is that we've in some ways backed our way into a corner that some privileged women can wiggle their way out of, but that takes a lot of planning and a little luck and privilege plus time, which not everyone has. I'll use myself as this example. I've built a business so intentionally over the past several years That will support me in getting to continue to work in a way that lights me up while also getting to raise my kids in the way that I hope to. I'm sure there will be some kinks to work out, but I had to think years ahead to design this system. I remember sitting with a girlfriend when I told her I was going to start my own business and she was so nervous for me. What are you going to do about maternity leave? It's a good question because I currently get nothing from the state. But In my mind, I would actually have the freedom to say how much time I wanted to take when I, you know, to take off of work, to plan my schedule when I came back and design something where I can hopefully breastfeed my baby while I work and where others don't always have that freedom. I remember choosing a business coach at the beginning of 2021 because she had children in the way that I desired and I wanted to be able to learn that from her. That was two years before I'm going to have a baby. And I think part of the shift that we see happening around this conversation has really gotten stronger since everyone got a taste of working from home or just not working during the pandemic. And they are seeing how there are other ways to work and mother that feel more aligned to them, which has only put the spotlight even more on how narrow of a hallway we had been backed into for so long by trying to emulate this masculine model of working. Women should get to choose which work is most fulfilling to them. Staying home and doing the work of raising their babies, putting nourishing food on the table, homeschooling, et cetera, or doing the work that more directly interfaces with the outside world, or maybe a hybrid of something in between. Neither should have judgment attached. And in my mind, that would be true feminism. 
It may be too late to go back and change the value that corporations are able to put on workers due to the huge majority of women in their childbearing years inflating the workforce, making single income households a rarity. But utilizing the tremendous opportunities for self-employment may be a good middle ground for the women who desire to have their cake and eat it too. The masculine work culture has also largely created an environment where it's incredibly challenging for many women to live cyclically. We can't ignore the differences in male and female biology any longer, and trying to inside the workplace has left more women burnt out and ill than ever. A woman's brain chemistry changes 25% over the course of her cycle. Her strengths and her weaknesses shift. The tasks that she's best suited for change. Feminism focused on equality between the sexes. And their path to do this was to assimilate with the men. But in this case, separate but equal would have been more appropriate. If a woman is given the liberty to work cyclically, we'd likely see a very different way in which women are able to show up to work and at home. I also quickly want to point out the glaring issue of maternity leave, specifically in the United States, and think it's an ironic chicken and the egg situation (laughs) because The feminism of the past was so focused on equality between men and women, it ignored the differences between us. And their approach to the workforce was to leave kids at home when you're at work, or better yet, delay having them for a significant period of time, insert more need for hormonal birth control, which then led to the rise of more formula use, right? And the less of a need for meaningful maternity care. If women are equal to men, you can get back on the horse in six weeks after having a baby. Insert my major eye roll here. (laughs) But if you look at feminism books from the 70s, et cetera, this was the narrative. And now the modern feminist movements are pushing for significant changes for paid maternal leave. And the patriarchy is saying, you've been doing it fine for 60 years. (laughs) So it's this funny patriarchy feminism standoff we found ourselves in, right? The patriarchy of the past was like women should stay home and take care of babies. And the feminine of the feminism of the past was like, let us back into the workforce. We don't need to do that. And now we're in this current situation where the current feminist movement is like, give us paid maternity leave. And the men are like, you've been back in the workforce for all this time. You can keep doing it. And so we, we've just like switched narratives. So it's it's a pretty ironic chicken and the egg situation and one that really hurts women today. Anyways, let's move on to the third point, rising infertility rates and chronic disease. Now, let's be really clear. I'm not 100% blaming feminism here. Toxins, industrial food systems, changing of our lifestyles, and so much more have played a significant role but I do think they are connected on a deeper level than meets the naked eye. Let's go back to that conversation I was having with my client who thinks dual income families are a lie. That conversation was started by me posting on Instagram that everything designed for our modern world 
is typically focused on convenience, but almost always comes to a cost, comes at a cost to our health. I also happen to think this is one of the spiritual tests of our time um, to see this pattern and rise above it, but that's for a different podcast. But this particular client responded to my post around how everything in the modern world that's focused on convenience comes at a cost for our health. And she replied back that she feels the same, but is so guilty of choosing those choices because she can't keep up. It's a lot. It requires training and practice to be able to work full time and feed your family homemade nourishing meals that meet the health standards that so many of us strive for. I also just want to quickly name about this particular client. She has recently been diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. Both of her children have severe food allergies. She's a great example for what we're going to talk about today. Convenience foods, takeout, packaged snacks, and meals have snuck their way into the modern American household in mass. We see this go back to the Second World War. Men were away at war, women enter the workforce, and industrial food, packaged foods, preserved foods, and I'm not talking about your great grandma's pickles, entered the American household to feed families when mom wasn't able to cook. And after the war, we continued to see the rise of the industrial food system. Snack foods were literally invented during this time. There were like no such thing as snacks before this. Packaged convenience foods, the TV dinner, canned and frozen foods filled with preservatives and ingredients that were uncommon to the home cook became ubiquitous in the food system. Feminism was also somewhat dependent on this food system. For an order to women, for women to not have to spend as much time cooking or thinking about how to feed their families so that they could go out and play equal part to men in the world. Fast forward decades, and we see the impact of this dependency on modern convenience foods on the health system. The conditions we see regular today, regularly today, like leaky gut, ADHD, chronic diseases, and autoimmune diseases are prevalent, right? They're everywhere. We know these diseases are lifestyle diseases, and many of them link back to the food that we eat, our microbiomes, and our immunity, which is heavily influenced by the food that we eat. I mean, as early as when we are newborns, really, like when breast milk provides superior nutrition, immunity, and colonizing of the gut than formula, but also along with the rise of this feminist narrative, so too rose the convenience food formula. You can go back to work while someone else feeds your baby. You don't have to be attached to your baby on your boob all the time in the same way. And we see that this is causing, you know, more obese, like the impact of formula, but also the impact of reliance on convenience foods is causing an epidemic. We're seeing more obesity than ever in kids, more rates of diabetes in this country, starting with younger and younger ages and conditions like IBS, IBD, asthma, allergies, eczema, and immunity and behavioral issues rising in children. Diets like the GAPS diet, autoimmune paleo, specific carbohydrate diet, keto, the fine gold diet have popped up in the last couple of decades as a response to these conditions with amazing results, but it requires a lot of time and energy and resources from a caregiver. 
GAPS, the gut and psychology syndrome diet shown to improve autoimmune diseases, even put them in remission, remove, improve function in autistic children and so much more is really time intensive, especially when it's relative to picking up a pizza on the way home from work. Or you being fed by your tech company dinner and someone making your kid box mac and cheese. The fine gold diet, which supports behavioral issues for kids, requires the elimination of common additives to food, like food coloring as one example. And it can be incredibly effective and can make a clear connection to why so many children and adults nowadays struggle with ADHD or on the spectrum. And I've heard many moms say, I know there's a way to do this with diet in terms of support their children with these conditions, but I don't have the capacity. Making food from scratch takes longer and planning and skill and, and, you know, all these things. And when feminism encouraged women to only be able to find fulfillment outside of the home, it left this huge gap. And I'm not here saying that every woman should not work and stay home and play Martha Stewart. But what I am offering is that the replacement of home cooked nourishing meals has come at a significant price for this generation in health and is continuing to get worse. And moms slash women suffer from this on huge levels. One, to see their child not thrive for because of any health condition and often either not know why, or even if she did know why and wanted to change it to feel unable to do so because of lack of time or lack of skill, maybe her mom never showed her how to cook. So she does, she feels like she's operating at this huge deficiency. This must be so painful. Number two, women are more likely to have chronic disease than men. And 80% of people with autoimmune disease are women. So we've made many women who are sick and tired prisoners in their own bodies. Some as a result of their grandmothers and mother's choices, because yes, your genes are impacted by the decisions that your grandmother made with food. And others as a result of buying into the societal standard of convenience foods that's happening right now. I 100% believe it is possible to have it all to share food responsibilities with a partner, to take appropriate food shortcuts in ways that are less harmful to the body, learn the skills of how to make quick and easy and nourishing meals, but it has to be a priority for any family where both parents work in order to make this happen. It has to be a very significant priority in terms of resources, time, energy, money, everything. And now we've started to see a slight return to an old fashioned way of living where more women are finding their feminism, their form of feminism, their liberation and fulfillment in slowing down and supporting their families in what we might consider from the conventional feminist approach, an antiquated model. We're staying home and making sourdough bread or growing a huge garden and having chickens and spend, spending significant time on the nourishment of the family is how these women are choosing to live out this season of their lives. Either working home, you know, working from home in careers that allow for this flexibility or choosing not to work outside the home and see the women's work of raising a family and keeping a home as really revolutionary for this day and age. 
something the feminist culture I was raised learning about would look down on and find oppressive. But is it? If raising a healthy family, feeling amazing in your body and having the space to live cyclically and honor the rhythms of your body, the natural world, and so much more is old fashioned, I'd choose that. You might not, and that's okay, but we need to reframe if the real goal of feminism is to support the liberation of women, let them choose what's most liberating without judgment or shame. For many, that's a refocus on the family. Speaking of the family, how has feminism impacted fertility? Well, in several ways. Many cases of unexplained infertility are due to inflammation and autoimmunity. As we already spoke about, much of this inflammation and autoimmunity is rooted in diet, leaky gut, et cetera, and a reaction to the food environment we've been raised in and have perpetuated. Even the fast, casual, sweet green Chipotle culture and the food, you know, the tech companies are serving isn't really serving women's health. So the emphasis on productivity and work has led so much to the health crisis that we see, which is also impacting fertility. Additionally, male sperm counts have dropped significantly over the past 50 years and are continuing to do so. The main factors we believe that are contributing to this are obesity and toxicity. We already discussed the impact of outsourcing nourishment feminism had on the past several decades of obesity and diabetes. As many more children are obese now, so too will they be as an adult, leading to lower sperm counts. Another factor in the sperm decreasing is phthalates, and phthalates are most commonly found in plastic packaging. They're huge culprits of phthalates. So takeout containers, plastic wrapping on foods. Dr. Shauna Swan has been studying the impact of phthalates on fertility for the past 30 years. And her research finds that when babies are exposed to high levels of phthalates in the womb, through mom's exposure to phthalates, the baby boy's perineums, which is the space between the anus and the base of the testicles for boys, is shorter on average than those who do not have high levels of phthalate exposure. Upon testing decades later, these men will have lower testosterone and lower sperm counts than the control group. For baby girls, the perennial space between the vaginal opening and the anus will be longer and correlates with hormonal issues when exposed to phthalates from her mom in the womb and correlates with hormonal issues like PCOS, which is a common cause for struggling to get pregnant later on in life. We're seeing the outsourcing of food from restaurants, from grocery, you know, pre-prepared grocery items impact fertility in real time. And another way that feminism has impacted fertility has been selling this idea of pushing off having kids in order to focus on the career or your life without kids more and the casual sex culture feminism encouraged more on that in a second. And it's more and more common to see women waiting until their late thirties or early forties to start having children when statistically speaking, it is more challenging to get pregnant also comes with more risk to the health of the baby. Let's go back to earlier, more chronic disease. I was just reading an article actually this morning that one of the highest correlating factors to having a child on the autism spectrum is advanced maternal and paternal age, right? So 
we haven't biologically caught up with this new narrative of work now, have a family later. Between the ages of 20 to 24, a healthy couple has an 86% chance of getting pregnant within a year, which breaks down to about a 25% chance of getting pregnant on any given cycle. Between the ages of 25 to 29, they have a 78% chance of getting pregnant within a year. Between the ages of 30 to 34, a 63% chance of getting pregnant within any year. Between the ages of 35 and 39, that decreases to 52%. And by within a year, and by age 40, it's a 44% chance of getting pregnant in a year, or down to about 5% chance per cycle. The risks for pregnancy loss also increase within with maternal age and paternal age, so both parents' age, as well as the risks of abnormalities with the baby. Well, of course, there are women who get pregnant without intervention in their late 30s and early 40s, and I love helping women on all spectrums of the age range or where they are at with their fertility get pregnant. When we look at the numbers, one in six couples struggling to conceive the average age for the first time moms rising and at the highest number ever, plus rising even more for higher, for more socioeconomic, for more educated and higher socioeconomic groups, we can start to see this trend. Sometimes becoming a mom can't wait and we need to stop selling women the lie that they have as much time as they want if they want to become parents and they want to do it with more ease. There's over a 30% reduction between having a baby at 29 versus 40. And more women need to be educated about this to make choices that are right for them and for their family planning. While I know that not every woman wants to become a mother, and I think Elizabeth Gilbert said it best when she said that there are three types of women, women meant to be mothers, women meant to be aunts, and women who aren't supposed to come within five feet of a child, and that much of a woman's unhappiness can stem from being in the wrong category. Giving women choices is what's important. I believe that as much as feminism has empowered women in categories two and three to not have children, right? And that has been a blessing for them, for the women who don't want, you know, who for women who don't, who are meant to be aunts and who are not meant to come within five feet of a child, that's amazing to have feminism tell them you don't have to just become a mom. And that's beautiful. I also think it's sold the other women in category one, women who were meant to be mothers, a lie. And that has caused a lot of suffering for those women, either to not be able to have children or who struggle to do so on the journey to becoming a mother. And now not all of this is due to women choosing to prioritize their careers because for a lot of women wanting to have children with a partner, they want the partner first. And this is taking longer and longer to find that partner and they find that partner later in life, which leads us into the fourth point and the final point in this podcast. So let's let's talk about it. And point number four is that feminist has created a forced or at least incredibly common casual sex culture that works against the female biological system, which is leaving so many women lonely and anxious and sad 
and finding their partners oftentimes later in life, which can contribute to point three with infertility, chronic disease, et cetera. When feminism came or was supposed to come (laughs) or yeah, with feminism came this idea or was supposed to come this idea of sexual liberation for women. And in some ways it definitely did. And it set the stage for women to have more autonomy in the bedroom, more freedom to express themselves sexually and whatever that looked like. And in the way that many of the other ways feminism opened doors for women, the pendulum may have swung a little bit too far. The multiple partners, let's keep things casual, too cool for commitment, hookup dating culture that's become the standard in the West today goes against the way that women are hormonally wired. Women create more oxytocin, which is the love bonding hormone after sex than men, which is where the stereotype of women getting more attached after sex comes from. And stereotypes are sometimes rooted in truth. And while some women may really thrive off of casual sex culture, one night stands and dating around leaves a lot of women feeling empty and unfulfilled. But so many women are trying to fit themselves into the mold of this is what I'm supposed to do in today's day and age. This is how I play the game to get the guy or to fit in. In Bridget Fetessy's article titled, I Regret Being a Slut, she speaks to this so poignantly. I quote, if I'm being honest with myself, of the dozens of men I've been with, at least the ones I can remember, I can only think of a handful I don't regret. The rest I would put in the category of casual, which I would define as sex that is either meaningless or mediocre or both. If I get really honest with myself, I'd say that most of these usually drunken encounters left me feeling empty and demoralized and worthless. I wouldn't have said that at the time, though. At the time, I would have told you I was liberated. Even while I tried to drink away the sick feeling of rejection when my most recent hookup didn't call me back. I know regretting most of my sexual encounters is not something a sex positive feminist who used to write a column for Playboy is supposed to admit. And for years, I didn't. End quote. I highly recommend reading the rest of her article. I'll also post it in the show notes. It's, it's just so, yeah, it's just so eye-opening and illuminating for me. And you know, there are several ways that feminism has approached sex over the past 60 years. And I'm mostly speaking right now to the sex positive feminist movement, which in theory is all good. I'm all for women expressing themselves however they want sexually, but it's the narrative that has been morphed by the media adopted by this mass culture that surprise, surprise has actually played out significantly better for men than it has for the average woman. We haven't seen much improvement in the believing of women who report sexual assault. 26% of college students that are female experience rape or sexual assault through physical force, violence, or incapacitation. And of that, only 20% of those victims report the crime to law enforcement, many for fear of reprisal, belief they won't be believed, or that law enforcement couldn't do anything. 
So it's not like we're better off there. <laughs> and conversations I've had with friends in women's circles, some facilitated specifically for this purpose of talking, talking about this subject and some not. Many things about this topic have come up and I don't really have an answer to it. I do believe every woman should get to choose the way that she wants to have sex, talk about sex, feel about sex, et cetera. But just as so many women are shamed for not desiring to work outside of the home or feel shame in that, I know that women feel frustration around the current expectations and the scene of the dating world. They feel judged if they don't want to date around or have sex casually and feel like it's increasingly more challenging to get what they deeply desire, which is commitment and love. The have sex with who you want, when you want, without judgment, sex positivity, feminism went so far that now if you don't want to have sex with several men or do so without commitment, there is some societal judgment from the people that you may be dating or even your peers. I remember being in a bit of a sad place after breaking up with a boyfriend in college and everyone, all my friends telling me that I needed to have sex with someone new to feel better. A friend went so far as to set me up with this guy for a date, uh, knowing he was quote, exactly what I needed, (laughs) right? Cute, nice, totally unavailable. He worked on ships and would be gone for months at a time and was just in town, you know, for a couple of weeks. And it was a guaranteed good time without any of the commitment and apparently was exactly what I needed, according to everyone that I was friends with. I wasn't sure, but I went out with him anyways. He was cute. He was nice. And we did have a nice time. But after the date and what followed, I remember feeling more sad than better than good. It was definitely not what I needed. I just felt empty. But when my friends asked about it, I lied and I said they were right and it was great. Why? I thought there was something wrong with me for not wanting that. Looking back, I think I thought it made me less of a feminist that I only wanted to have sex with someone who really cared about me and someone who I was committed to. I'm not exactly sure where the future of feminism is heading. Gender, sex, sexuality in general is becoming an increasingly complicated topic in Western society. I think we're very much still in the process of that pendulum swinging and it is yet to be determined where it will land. What I do know is that the feminism of my childhood, the one that I was raised to be in awe of, hasn't lived up to the promise that I believed it held. I do believe that many women who have bought in generation after generation to this narrative have been sold a lie. And in some ways there's no going back, only going forward and redefining what the feminism of the future means to us, to you as an individual. And that will redefine the way that feminism plays out in the culture that our children will be raised in. My hope is that feminism now means making choices that actually leave women feeling more fulfilled, that leave space for women to feel liberated in what that means for them without the external pressures of what it means for others. My hope for womankind is that women don't feel like they are reliant on hormonal birth control, don't have to suck up the symptoms 
don't have to work in a way that interferes with the way they want to raise their families, don't have to feel like their female superpowers are hindrances and hidden in the workplace, that they have the space needed and ability to feel healthy and strong and fertile in their bodies. My hope for womankind is that every woman finds so much satisfaction in sex and that the women of the future and the women of today don't feel like they have to stay on hormonal birth control just so that they can have casual sex that doesn't leave them feeling fulfilled. My hope for womankind is that we all truly thrive. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic. A reminder that you don't have to agree with me, but you do have to be respectful. Send me a message on Instagram, Stephanie Adler Wellness, linked in the show notes as well with what resonated, what didn't, and what you think the future of feminism looks like. I can't wait to be in conversation with you. And until next time, lots of love, Stephanie.